Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill, where we discuss preparedness on a daily basis with you Monday through Friday, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. You know what that means. That doesn't mean monster trucks are coming on Saturday. No, it means that it's time for your calls. This is for people who picked up the phone in the last week, and a couple calls come from some of the older calls I pulled out, because some of the the calls that came in last week were not usable because of chainsaws, and actually it wasn't as bad cell phones and stuff like that, and some of you just kind of didn't actually get a question out, but uh, most of you guys that called in did really good this week, and I've got your calls up and queued up. If it's not on the air, assume a technical problem and try again, because uh, I did not get a huge volume of calls this week. Anyway, uh, the way you get on this show is you pick your phone up and you mash some numbers, and the numbers you want to mash are 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. It is a toll-free call for those of you in the United States anyway. Um, and give me a call and uh, leave me a message, two minutes or less. Here's the formula for getting your call on the air. One, get to your point first. If you have details or things like that, give me the details after you get to your point. Remember, it's not whether or not I care about answering your question, because I certainly do. Uh, I'm putting you on the air for two to three minutes here, and you got to keep the audience's attention. So if they know what you're asking, they'll listen to the details better. It's the formula for success. Two, call from a quiet area. If you're using a cell phone, Make, you have, make sure you have a few bars and a good connection. Those are the things that will get you on the air and know what you're going to ask before you call. That way you'll get out to the point. It's the best way to get on the air. It's not that I'm picking on anybody. I want you to understand that. I want to put as many of your calls on the air as possible, and that will make the audience attention hold just like, and it'll help me help you better. I always find that when people ask their question first and then fill in the details, I have a better understanding as well of what you're actually trying to get across to me. And you don't end up panicked at the end and forgetting to ask what you really wanted to ask. Anyway, I'm not going to say any more on that. I'm going to let it go, and we're going to have a lot of fun answering your questions today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready Made Resources. Now, What more can you ask from from a company? Then they say, this is our name, and our name is what we do, and we do what we say, and we do it every time. That's ready-made resources. All the things that you could possibly need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go, sitting on their website, point-click, buy, and they show up at your house. Well, how's that different than anybody else that has a website? Because they have all of the resources ready-made, from gardening to solar to wind to tactical, and you name it, uh, long-term storage food. They've got it all. Great pricing, great shipping, and, of course, they have my personal endorsement, or they wouldn't be my sponsor. So Check out ReadyMadeResources.com today. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Um, you need to have more ammo than you probably think you do. I mean, I was going to put it to you that way. A gun without ammo is a highly expensive club. That's it. 
And when it comes to ammo, most of us, even if we have a, a broad collection of firearms, we probably have uh, a core that's made up of some real common stuff, like your 5.56 or civilian people, 2223, right? Uh, same thing. And 9mm, 40 Smith & Wesson, 308, 7.62, whatever you want to call it. But they're just common calibers. What you'll find at Bulk Ammo is some of the best pricing on that stuff you will ever see. Large quantities, shipping so fast you'll, your neck will snap when you get the email back uh, once they have your ID and all so that they can ship you ammo and you do subsequent orders. The, the speed of their operation will blow you away. So, you know, if you need ammo and you need lots of it, where else would you go other than bulk ammo? It just, the name said, again, almost like ready-made, isn't it? That's what they promise, that's what they deliver. You're not going to go to bulk ammo and they're not going to be trying to sell you a whole bunch of MREs. They're going to sell you bulk ammo. Yeah, that's kind of cool to deal with a company that says who they are with their name and then does it. And that's uh, part of why I endorse them so highly. So check out BulkAmmo.com today. Next up, remember, you can connect with me. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter are the best ways to do that. Links to all of them can be found on the website. Check out our forum as well. You will see a link to the forum. Along with, if you've never been part of an Internet forum before, you can read a little note there from me that tells you how to get along in forums instead of going in and hacking everybody off because we don't want any of that. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you get about $150 worth of free ebooks the day you sign up. You get discounts to over 30 vendors, and you're supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode is what happens when you do the math. And uh, one last thing, remember military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, email me at jack at com. Before you join, give me some details about your service, just who you are, where you served, when you served. Don't be making photocopies of your ID card or anything. I don't need that DD-214 copies. Nope. Don't go that far. Just tell me what you did. I'll know if I'm being bullshitted or not. And I really don't think I have been at all yet. And I will send you a discount code for a special discount price to thank you for your service to our nation. With that, got the housekeeping wrapped up, ready to get into your calls. One more quick announcement, though. Uh, I will be at SHOT Show all next week. There will be a show Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, Thursday is up in the air. We'll see if I can get some interviews conducted while I'm out there. And uh, if I can, I'll try to get a show up Thursday. There probably will not be a show Friday next week. Thursday night, Thursday night in Vegas at Tommy Bahamas, we're having a TSP get-together. One more reminder on that. Uh, I want to remind you guys that that is not a SHOT Show event. It is a TSP event happening when SHOT Show is happening. So anybody in Vegas or near Vegas is welcome to come. I will have a link to where you can get all the details on Facebook. We are limiting it to 60. Right now I think we have like 18 coming, uh, and we have like another 18 maybe coming. So you need to RSVP if you're going to come. Somebody asked yesterday if I'm bringing a person with me, should they RSVP too? Yes, because it's part of the head count. Uh, and you can do that on Facebook. Again, I'll have a link in today's show notes. Now one thing I want to do real quick, um, because probably you guys, think that like I just I'm burying my head in the sand on this flat out I've been working my brains out this week because we're going away and I'm just like gonna do it and then forgot I'm gonna give you my Super Bowl or not my Super Bowl my uh, playoff predictions for the weekend and know this I'll miss the Sunday games because I'm gonna be in the air on my way to Vegas and that's kind of bumming me out uh, but I want to do something first for uh, the Broncos good job guys That was one of the best football games I've ever watched in my life. My Steelers losing to you guys, uh, I didn't really feel bad about it. I, I, I looked at that and went, that was a hard-fought game. 
I'm not going to really rub in any, you know, try to take anything away by saying, you know, like half of our team was on injured reserve and our quarterback was gimpy. Uh, but you guys still played your brains out and Tebow played the game of his professional career when he needed to do it. So congrats on that. Let me give you my picks real quick on the games that are coming up this weekend, just because I thought it was fun. And here they go real quick. I'm picking the Pats over the Broncos. I just think there's too much experience on that side of the ball. And uh, too many vets. And I know the same thing could have been said about Pittsburgh, but the Patriots are healthy and my Steelers were not. Uh, and that's just a fact. Uh, Saints over Niners. And uh, first of all, if you bet money on any of my, like if you go out and you know have a bookie or something, you bet on games and you use my predictions, you're a fool. You're much better listening to what I say about the financial market than football. I'm not a luminary when it comes to football. That game can go either way. That's going to be one of the best games of the season. I can't wait to watch that game, and I will be home to see it uh, tomorrow. Ravens over the Texans. I'm pretty confident in that pick. Of course, I was confident in some picks I got wrong last round. Uh, but I just think that the Ravens have too much going for them. Uh, they're actually, right now, I'm picking them to end up facing the, Pat, the Pats and uh, beating the Pats and being the AFC champion this year. Uh, then the Pack over the Giants, but that's going to be another game. This is going to be some really great playoff football. Uh, and um, I'm sad to say I'll miss at least the Ravens-Texans game. Uh, I'd love to see that game. I might be able to see a little bit of the Packers-Giants once we get to our hotel uh, in Vegas. So I know it was a long intro segment, but, hey, I had to do that, and I had to give a congratulatory uh, statement to the Broncos, man. And I know I said Tebow was an awful quarterback. Um, a lot of ways that I've watched the guy play, he looks like an awful quarterback. He did not last Sunday, and I'd love to see him keep playing that because he's an exciting guy to watch the play. Don't think I'm beating him up or anything. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Jack, how's it going? Keith in Denver, Colorado. Hey, uh, I'm a new-time listener, and I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot of information that you put out, but I, since being a new-time listener, I, I don't have time to go through everything. Is there a way to... Maybe get it on transcripts or a CD, DVD, something like that that you might put out in the future. Uh, next question is, new to prepping, where do I start? Um, love the show. Look forward to listening to you next Friday. Thanks. Bye. Well, first, welcome to the show, and understand that it's really normal for people that are new to the preparedness lifestyle to feel overwhelmed because there is so much to talk about. The very fact that I'm doing 820 episodes as of today tells you there's just a tremendous amount of information to take in. Um, I do have some advice for you. First, let me, on the transcripts thing, I get about once or twice a month, I want transcripts. I don't like to listen to shows. I want transcripts. And I get two different things. One is like I can just page through it quicker and find what I want. But then I get the people that are like, I don't like podcasts. If, if that's you, I'm sorry, then don't listen to podcasts. There's a million blogs on this stuff. Go there. It's not a sour grapes thing. It's just that's what I do. For the other folks, I can't do it financially. It would cost me about $100 minimum per episode to provide transcripts. That's going to mean $2,000 a month that I'm going to have to pay to provide transcripts to the show. It's just not financially viable. Now, um, if there were a hundred people that all were willing to pay twenty bucks a month and offset the cost, then I could have somebody do that, um, and it would still be a loss for me because I wouldn't make it. When you move money around and you don't make a profit, I would have to. I would lose money, but I would be willing to do it if there was that much of a demand. I can't afford to do that with my business model. I really have a hard time sometimes people are like, well, you have to have a script. I do not have a script. For those that are new to the show, like this caller, I did this show for over two years in my car, and my notes were on a 5 by 7 note card. 
I do not have a script. I don't script anything that I do. So the only notes that exist, when I say go look at the show notes, there they are. And a lot of shows, I write the notes after I do the show. This is really, I've just been doing it this long, and I know what I'm going to say, and I've been working the show up in my head for 24 hours in advance when I sit down and do a show. That's how it usually works, so I, I can't do that. Now, I can help you, though. One thing you need to realize, a lot of you guys listen to the show on iTunes, and you don't go to the survivalpodcast.com. Especially if you're new, that's a big mistake. It's a huge mistake. Because you can go there and there's a search box. And whatever you want to know about, if you type into that search box, I just about guarantee you an episode's going to show up. If you scroll down, you will see almost like halfway down the site in the far right-hand margin a, a thing that says tags. And the most common things we talk about are there. And if you click on any of those tags, it'll pull up all the shows that were tagged with that. That's a great way. If you go to the site and you look across the top, you'll see one tab that says welcome. And when you when you hover over that, it's going to have it's a welcome center for you. So it'll have a lot of stuff, tell you how to listen, how to get along in our forums. But then there's one of the pages that says shows for new listeners. And this is a, a group of six of the shows that have had the biggest impact on people to help them get off in the right foot. Uh, one is, you know, it goes back all the way to 69, and the most recent one is episode 648. So it spans the breadth of what we talk about. So all of those are ways. But let me give you, just for all of you that are kind of getting started, the best way to put this in perspective is to just think about what you're doing and why. And to understand that, we just realize that we have five absolute needs in survival. Food, shelter, water, energy, and security. We have to have those five. And we could add things like sanitation and, 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 and health and medical if we really want to kind of stretch it out. But it's really about those five. So it's very simple to start. Eat what you store, store what you eat, build up a little bit of extra food, put together a bug out bag. That's a big thing. Put together a, a, a bug out, a, a, what I call a black out kit. A blackout kit, which is just candles, batteries, flashlights, things like that. Start thinking about the things that you're going to need. Try this. Just sit down in your house and say to yourself, I can't leave for a week and the power's out and the water doesn't run. What would I do? That's, that's a, without having any fear, you know, it's not the zombies. It's just, that's just the situation. How would I get by for a week? And start putting all the things in place you need to get through that week. Uh, not just come out the other side of life. Because most people, if they were locked in their homes for a week and they couldn't leave, unless you're one of these fashionista idiots in New York that has no food in your house or something like that, um, you're going to be able to get by. But are you going to be comfortable? So how could you make yourself more comfortable? What are you going to, if it's hot, how are you going to keep cool? If it's, if it's cold, how are you going to stay warm? If you're bored, how are you going to entertain yourself? If you can't t fire up the, 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 uh, the oven or the stove, how are you going to cook? That mental exercise will take you so far along. And then the other thing is just realize that you don't have to get it all done overnight. This is a marathon, not a sprint. There's time. We're not gonna, we're not going over the edge of, of nowhere tomorrow morning. I promise you. More likely that people will experience disasters in a regional and individual basis than at a global scale. But the things to focus on are the food, the water, the shelter, the energy, and the security. And that's just a great place to stay. It would also probably be good for you to go to the survivalpodcast.com and search for terms like threat matrix, right? And disaster probability. I've done a ton of shows on those. I probably need to add those to the welcome center. 
And any of you guys out there that are long-time listeners that can think of some shows that should be for new listeners, let me know when I get back from Vegas. I'll add them to the Welcome Center. I'd like to beef that up a little bit for callers like this. But on the transcripts, unless there's a lot of you out there willing to pay for them, I can't afford to do it. I don't say that to be mean or anything. I just you, No business can afford a $2,000 expense that has no return on it. And I certainly cannot, and that's about what it would cost. Plus, I would have to have to take the time to upload them and put them in place and link to them and all that other stuff. So, I mean, it's really would be an out-of-pocket expense on my end with cost of materials and hosting and everything else of about 2500 bucks a month in expenses uh, for zero return because I don't think people want to pay for them. If I'm wrong, if there's a couple hundred of you willing to pay for them every month on a monthly recurring basis, we can figure out how to do it, but... It would have to be quite a few people because I don't think anybody out there wants to pay me two thousand. You know, be the sole source of the uh, the funding for it. So anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric in Florida. I do not trust that the FDIC will always be solvent. Is it safer to keep money in a large national bank chain rather than a small regional regional bank? Because these large banks have been branded by the government as too big to fail and thus have a second layer of protection by the government that feels forced to keep funding them when they are in trouble. Thank you. Yeah, have you ever heard the old saying, six of one and half a dozen of the other? You're, you're kind of in that, that bracket there. First of all, we need to look at the reality that the small regional banks did not even get close to failing in this last thing. There was maybe... Uh, a couple that were mid-tier banks or so like that, but there wasn't a single, not that I saw, it was always the big banks that were in danger of failure. Small banks, especially if you look at banks with like four or five branches, local banks, generally speaking, um, they can't put themselves into those positions in the first place. They don't have the ability. They can't get away with it, so they have to manage their money safer. Um, the big banks, and you say too big to fail and they have a track record of being bailed out by the government, understand they didn't bail them out at the FDIC layer. They bailed them out at the corporate uh, jackass layer. They took care of them. They didn't take care of the people that were losing their homes. That's what it was supposed to be for, but it didn't happen. So there's no guarantee that that'll happen again. Just because, you know, history is a great indicator, but do the, do the politicians at large have the stomach to do it again? Think of how angry people are about the bailouts. Do you think for real that if they get into this kind of hot water mess again that we can do it again? I don't know that we can. I'm not saying we won't. I'm saying I don't know that we can. I think if it gets done, it'll be done backdoor by the Fed and maybe. The reality, though, if you want a good place to keep you on know, basic savings account and that type of financial relationship, probably the safest thing you could do is find a community credit union because they operate completely different. They don't operate for a profit. They operate to service their members. And the way that they operate makes it almost impossible for them to go into failure other than from mortgage loans that fail. And we've kind of washed that crap out a lot now. Um, so if you are... If you're in a position where your community credit union is failing, uh, it's probably everybody's up, you know, tits up anyway. So I, I don't sweat this, but I will tell you, you keep cash on hand. You don't put all of your cash in the bank, right? And that you don't put all your cash in one bank, especially as you pay off debt and you get something called surplus cash, something that Americans don't seem to be familiar with anymore. And if you're really in a quandary, and let's say that you had saved up money over a few years and you've got $20,000 that's your emergency long-term cash fund, 
Well, if you're really that worried, get a small local bank and put $10,000 in a savings account there and then find a big multi, you know, international, multinational bank or whatever, you know, your big JP Morgan Chase type bank and put half of the money there and split the difference and keep an eye on what's going on. And at either time that you feel that there's any danger for your money, take it out. When they say, don't run on the banks, it's okay, don't run. When that's when they say that, that's when you go get your money. When they tell you not to, it's all okay, there's nothing to see here, don't worry about it. It is all going to be just swell. When they hear that, that's when I would worry about taking my money out. Because do they say that right now? No, why? There's no threat. It's when there's a threat and they start saying, everything will be swell, that you know something's wrong. All right? Or could be wrong. And... You know, they say, well, if everybody does it, everybody won't do it. Most people will sit there like dumb sheep and get hit in the face. So there, there's likely to be plenty of time for you to act on this stuff and pay attention to it. And uh, all I'll say also is tune in and hear Mike Gazer next week. It'll be on Tuesday. And I think it might answer some more questions that you have. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Phil calling from Tucson. Uh, a few months ago, I got an M1008 cuck fee, and I had to drive to California to get it, and I actually love the damn thing. Kids love it, too. They refer to it as the redneck war wagon. Uh, anyway, I got some mechanical advice I want to ask you about. As you know, the standard transmission in it uh, is a three-speed automatic, and it's got a top speed of about 50 to 55 miles an hour. I was wondering if it would be worth it to try and swap that out for an overdrive transmission or just to leave the stock one in and appreciate the truck for what it is. Uh, thanks a lot for your advice. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, registering it in Arizona, I actually had no problem with it. I didn't make a big deal out of what it was when I went into the DMV to register it, so they did a lookup on the VIN, and it just came up as a one-ton Chevrolet pickup. So I left it at that, registered it, no problem. Thanks a lot for your help, man. Step five. Well, let's start out at the end first as far as registering them, the 1008 and the 1009. And for those who don't know, these are the, the they call them commonly Cuck Vs, um, but they're the military pickup trucks and, and, uh, and, and Blazer SUV style vehicles that were very, very heavily used in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s and were eventually replaced, mostly replaced by the Humvees. Uh, but the, uh, but there's still quite a few of them and actually in service. And, uh, they were built by a variety of different companies. Chevy built some, Dodge built some, et cetera. Um, but they are basically, there's not a lot of difference between a 1008 or a 1009 in a civilian version of that vehicle. Uh, there's some battery differences and there's, uh, some wiring differences and some stuff like that. But really, you're not going to have trouble registering them anywhere. They are a street legal vehicle. There's nothing spectacular about them. They're just a good, solid diesel truck that you can get for a fairly good price that's easy to maintain. Now, on the gearing, I always have to fall back on Tim at Old Grouch for this because I did not do a lot of work on cut Vs. Basically, what I did when I came in in, in 89-90, uh, got out of school and, and, and got back from the sand and eventually got deployed to a real unit um, in, uh, in Panama, you know, my permanent unit, not a real unit, but my permanent unit, um, there were cut Vs everywhere. We, that's what they had. They didn't have any Humvees yet, but they were, like, just about to get them. So what I did as a mechanic, and first of all, I was supposed to be working on bigger vehicles anyway. Five tons and above was my echelon of maintenance. I was a heavy wheel mechanic. I worked on the big truck tractors and Hemets and stuff like that, but it was, like, all hands. So I got some experience with them. And uh, But basically it was every little minor thing that's wrong with them, fix it so we can swap them out. So that was the sum total of my experience with them as a mechanic. 
Uh, we did drive them quite a bit and use them for transportation and all, and they were fun, and I really kind of want one. But I reached out to Tim, and here's Tim's answer, and then I'll give you my thoughts in addition to it. Uh, as far as changing the, the speed, the overall speed capabilities of the vehicle, I asked, you know, is it better to work with the, the rear differential in its gears or go the overdrive transmission route? And here was his response. It's the combination of the two. The 1008 axles have four, and 1008 is the pickup, 1009 is the blazer style, okay? The 1008 axles have 4.56 gears, and the final transmission is a direct one-to-one -one drive. That overall combination limits your top speed. The 1009 has 3.08 gears in the axles with the same transmission, giving it a higher top speed. The trade-off is you get, with less gear reduction, you get lo less low-end torque and pulling power in the 1009. So the 1009 will go faster, but it'll pull less when you're pulling at slower speeds and trying to get something started out on a tow or, or pull something out of a ditch or something like that. To increase the top speed in the 1008, you can either replace the gears in both axles or go with an overdrive transmission with a 0.7 or 0.75 higher gear ratio. I prefer the overdrive transmission method because you retain the lower gearing. In first through third gear, the truck acts just like it did with the original transmission with the same low-end torque and power, plus I get the higher top speed if I shift into fourth or, or overdrive. The third route is to add an aftermarket overdrive uh from a company called Gear Vendors. However, this will usually cost more than an entire transmission replacement unless you can score a deal with a used one, Tim. So basically, Tim's saying if you want to do this at all, going the overdrive transmission route is the way to go. And since you know, getting this cleared up from him, I can see for a fact that if you do this, that your one through three on your gearing will remain the same. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but not just so you can go faster. That's not really what it's about to me. Um, it's because I think it makes sense if you can find a rebuilt transmission, and I think you're going to pay about the same for the stock transmission or one with the fourth gear in it. You're going to pay about the same money, and you can get a, a fairly well put together rebuilt transmission that's like brand new for these things from what Tim has told me before of about $1,000. Uh, and if you put that in there, you've just bulletproofed and you know created longevity. And one, there's only three things on that vehicle that can fail that you can't fix on the side of the road. A complete engine failure, the transmission, uh, or your rear differential. And, and those three are the only things that I know of that I can't just fix as long as I have the parts and some tools. And your rear diff is going to give you problems before it goes out. You're going to know it's on its way out. Uh, trannies sometimes just go. And if an engine goes, you've got a whole different problem altogether. So uh, to me, it makes sense if you're ever going to do it. So you might just appreciate it for what it is, but you might be shopping around for a good deal on a rebuild. And if you're going to do that, just because it's going to make the vehicle more reliable, then it just makes sense to go ahead and drop that overdrive in there. But I wouldn't really worry about it too much either way. Those are your options. Those are the way things work out. And those are why or why you might not want to do it. I can tell you that every time somebody asks a question about one of these damn things, I think back to driving them around. And I think also back to driving my, I used to have an old 1980 Chevy Custom Deluxe. Uh, that originally had like a 350 or something in it, but this farmer had blown the motor 
and put a big old straight six in it that was out of like a Nova or something. And it only did about 75 miles an hour. And it was a lot like, it felt like a lot like driving a Cug V. And I had so much fun with that truck as a young kid. Um, and I, I think that I really want one of these things eventually. I just don't know if I want the Blazer or if I want the, uh, the pickup. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Keith from Denver again. Hey, uh, new to the show, you know. Uh, a couple of good questions I had before were answered. Anyways, I want to let you know you're not alone. I was, uh, sounds like your tour in Honduras was a lot like mine in Afghanistan. I was a triple nickel 864th Engineering Battalion. I was a surveyor. You know, the tangos, infamous tangos. Anyways, um, we did the same things, you know. And, and you'd, you'd see kids fighting, just beating the hell out of each other for clean water, for a bottle of water, you know. And uh, you're right. Soldiers are thinking to themselves, well, what in the hell? I uh, fought this war. I, I did what I was supposed to do. They come out and look for jobs like they were told in the IT and in the Army, and there's no jobs out there for them like me. It took me almost a year to find a decent job. And... Uh, you know, the other thing is, is I lost a big brother in Iraq, or in Afghanistan, I'm sorry. Um, he was my team leader, my corporal, and he was killed by a suicide bomber. And that song, 50 Cal, really hit me, because I, I couldn't go find that guy. He blew himself up. For a year, two years, I drank myself almost to death. Trying to think, what the hell, man? You know, I lost this guy. What do we do now? And uh, just just within the past couple months, I've been able to start coping. And a little bit with help from the Survival Podcast, you know, being prepared, thinking toward the future, and trying to just live a better life in general. So, yeah, just just thought you want some feedback on some of that stuff. Anyways, uh, love what you do. I'll keep listening if you keep putting them out. Talk soon. Bye. You know, the, the biggest reason I, I play calls like that when they come in is not so that I can comment on them, but so that other people that feel the same way can hear them. Uh, if we're not going to survive as individuals, we're not going to survive as a society. And we have an awful lot of people coming home right now that feel that way and worse. And uh, usually when somebody tells you they feel, how they feel and what they went through and how bad it was, they're telling you less than the truth. Uh, the pain that a veteran feels in a lot of these scenarios and the lack of acceptance that they feel and whatever part of it you feel is often like an iceberg. You're seeing only a very small portion of what's under the surface, and it takes them a long, long time to even allow that because you train not to do it. And uh, I never lost a, a brother in combat, but I did lose two different people in service that were lost, um, and, and a third who was was injured to a point where he became uh, uh, quadriplegic. So I know what it's like to lose people. It's and I think that's another thing that people need to understand. And it was something I talked about with Greg when we released that song "50 Cal" on on the air. Um, that there are soldiers out there every day doing things just like this guy did. This guy wasn't in combat arms, but he was in a combat zone. But there's soldiers every day that are not even combat zones that are that are risking their lives, especially in the engineering uh, world. We build roads where no one else can. And a lot of times you build that road and you do see those kids fight and you wonder what the hell, just like this guy said, but you know what? You can't fix everything, but at least if there's a road, at least if there's transportation, at least if there's infrastructure, those people then have a choice. They can, as a community, band together and start building or they can keep fighting with each other. And we don't get to say so on how that works. We get to say so in our own lives. And part of why I'm always so optimistic is because 
lots of people in our country today feel just like this guy that called in does. And some of them are because they're returning veterans. Some of them because they put their whole life into a career that's now gone. Some of them because a relationship fell apart. Some of them because their house this year, like thousands and thousands of people had their houses this year, were destroyed by a tornado and there's nothing left. Some of them because their 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 wife or, or husband was on the way home from work and got killed by a truck. And that's why I focus on the future, because it's the only way that you stop drinking yourself to death or drugging yourself to death or depressing yourself to death. Or, or It's the only way that you cope is to have a belief in tomorrow. And for all of you vets out there, the, the, especially those of you that are still over there that listen to me out in the field, and you hear us talk sometimes about how there's no jobs back here, um, I want you to know this. It's not quite that way. It's tough. It's hard. But there's a lot of people out there like me that believe in what you guys are doing, and we believe in you even if we don't want you doing certain things at certain times. If, if we were in charge, maybe you'd be in a different place in a different way, but we still believe in you, and there is hope here for you when you get back. What I want you to know you need to do is stay strong in touch with your brothers after you get out. They're the only ones that are really going to understand you, and it's together how you're going to cope. And I think that, and my wife and I were talking about this yesterday, and we've had people call in about it, and I'm pretty damn sure it's the case. The reason people from the World War II generation did so much better, not economically, but coping uh, with things, was one, the economics were better. So, yeah, they all went to work. And that if you're doing something, you have something that has meaning in your life that helps. But it usually took three months of, you know, go here to this staging area, wait, get on a ship, get shipped here, then get shipped there, and then finally get shipped home. And then you're in another staging area, and then you're processed out. And it may be three months between the time the combat ended And you ended up back in, you know, Joe Blow, Kansas with your family. And during that three-month period, you were surrounded by people that were there with you and understood you and allowed you to decompress. Today, today, we have a guy in Afghanistan one day being shot at, watching his buddy be blown up. And 48 hours later, he's, he's surrounded by family and friends that care about him but do not understand. And that makes it difficult. And you guys need to form as many groups as you can with people that do understand. And you need to realize that a lot of us that served prior to you serving, even though we might have served in a totally different environment, we do understand the transition. We really do. And we care about you guys, and we appreciate you. Um, and I'll tell you another thing. When you get home, even if you don't find a job, get something to do. Go out and volunteer somewhere, help kids, go out and plant a garden, uh, take up hunting and fishing. I don't care what you do, but get something to do and occupy your time and do something and feel that you have meaning in your life because you have a lot to offer. Uh, and that will lead you to preparedness. That will lead you to self-reliance. That will lead you to self-sufficiency, and that will lead you truly home. And uh, we want you all home, not just physically. We want you home, uh, want you home mentally, and we want you home spiritually, man. So all of you, know it. Know it in your hearts. There's plenty of us that care. All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Chad from Wisconsin. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on banks like ING, where they're all online. I use them for my savings account because they're a higher interest rate typically than a local bank. But it seems a little less tangible because it takes me two days to get any funds where a local bank I can just walk up to and withdraw the money. I have two months' salary saved up in cash at home, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on having long-term or, or bigger investments saved in online banks. Thanks. Bye. It's kind of the same question, but different than the last one about big versus little banks. Huh? Uh, my solution would be the same. If you're that worried about it, split your savings in one in a local bank and one in an online bank and get the higher interest rate there. 
I wouldn't sweat it too much. One thing to remember, as long as we're not in like a, an infrastructure failure, you can get a, uh, a debit card with ING and you can pull cash out. I guess the ATM might have a $500 limit or something like that. But you can get some cash like that even with like an ING direct account. Uh, I, I like them. I think they're a good place to save money. Uh, but I don't put all my eggs in one basket, and I don't even put all my eggs of the same kind in the same basket. So um, I, I do use ING. I think they make a lot of sense. They were recently purchased by Capital One, which I don't like. I, I, I don't like Capital One. Uh But I don't think it's really affected their their operating model or their stability at all. It's something I'm keeping an eye on, and if I feel at any point that there's anything I don't like about you know the way things are going forward, I would have no problem closing or reducing my savings there to maybe a hundred bucks and just weighing it out and moving the money somewhere else. Uh, there's also, you know, it's actually not that difficult to set things up where you can transfer money from one bank to another. That's that's another thing to look at, and that's usually quicker than waiting for funds to come to you as a check in the mail type of thing. Anyway, um, it's just it's just always easy when you want something but you're not fully sure to divide your divide your resources up between two things. So if you're choosing between A and B, it doesn't always have to be A or B. It could be A and B. All right, with that, uh, just keep that one short because it is kind of the same question. Let's go take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Ryan from Washington again. Uh, once again, thanks for the show. Uh, I listened this morning while I was at the gym to your uh, your calling show from uh, this past Monday the 6th, and I wanted to thank you for the, the Humvee portion. Uh, I was in 03, I served in Afghanistan, and 03 for the Army guys at 11 Bravo. And uh, I have a secondary MOS as a mechanic because we spent so much time working on the Humvees and having to do field support. And I think that that's probably one of the closest environments you can get to a survival situation or some of these things that people have rolling around in the brain housing group. And it's not realistic to think that you can support a Humvee. Um, I'm going to look into the five-ton. I think that that was an outstanding suggestion. I've never had to deal with one, so I'm going to look into it. My comment is one that I tried to get in uh, before the new year, and it has to do with how the U.S. government is going about getting taxes and there's a lot of people that uh, are all in favor of going after these uh, these hideaway accounts that are like, you know, Swiss bank accounts. And it's not just affecting these multimillionaires, but it's affecting U.S. citizens that are not necessarily expats, but live in other countries. Like my sister lives in Canada, and she's married to a Canadian Army officer, and she's having to declare their joint bank account. And because she's still a U.S. citizen. She has uh, American and Canadian citizenship. And it's one of these unintended consequences that she's got to pay income tax, American income tax now, in addition to Canadian tax. So I just wanted to point that out to people. And, again, thank you for doing that bit on the Humvee. Um, I think that's going to uh, fix a lot of people up right. Anyway, take care. Bye. Yeah, the more I think about it on the Humvee on the first part, the more I, I agree with myself and what I said. I think it is kind of unrealistic to believe that you're going to support a Humvee, uh, especially in a shit-hit-the-fan scenario. That there's stuff that goes wrong with them over and over and over again. The parts are expensive. They're hard to find in the best of times. And, uh, man, unless you want one just because you want to play soldier, I, I, I just think you're better off with a, with a good old-fashioned deuce-and-a-half, the, the A2s with the manual transmission that have been the same damn truck since 1951. I, I remember one time we went and uh, went to what's called a cannibal point. 
which is basically a military junkyard. And we took a hood off a deuce and a half, and it was it had a white star. I'm like I'm talking like Korea looking like remember Mash with the big white star and the guy was with me he's like there's no way this is gonna fit. this can't be the same hood and I'm like it's the same truck dude look at it he's like no nah, it can't be and we took it back and we stuck it on there and we cart painted it up and camoed it and it it, it went right on there um, and there's a reason something sticks around that long um, and they're easy to work on you get a dash 20 and a dash 30 technical manual which is your two echelons of maintenance at the mechanic level. Uh, in a dash, you know, dash 10, uh, you, you, those manuals, and you can do anything on those trucks. You can even change the tire without a bead breaker. It's kind of hard, but you can do it. Um, the, the five tons are a little more expensive, but there's a lot of parts availability there, and they're a well-built truck. They're an automatic. Um, but again, like, this seems like calls come in themed. If you just want something that used to be owned by the military and you want kind of that fun factor and, and you want the reliability and easy maintenance, those 1008 and 1009 cuck fees are just, you know, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, some of them are really bad shape. Some are some really good shape. But uh, but look into those as well. And uh, on the second part about the taxes, uh, this is one thing you have to know about your government. Uh, when they play class warfare games like, we're going after. When they say that, Whoever they describe as who they're going after, and this is so funny how repeatable it is. It doesn't matter if it's in the terrorist world with the Patriot Act, and then they end up going after people for 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 you know petty crimes and stuff like that, and using things to catch the moving money around or something. And they're supposed to be for terrorists, or in this case, we're going to go repatriate this money is the way they say it, right? So what they're saying is, Mister Bigwig opens up a Swiss bank account, but he's really an American citizen living in America. He keeps his money over there and he shelters it. They're never getting his money back. They're never going to tax him on that. He's got that thing. People with the kind of money they say they're going after have so many layers of complexity that that's why they almost pay no tax in the first place. They've written the law to their own advantage. So people like this guy talk about up in Canada, they go and they cause them problems. I'll tell you who this is really, who they're really going after. Look at the way I run Survival Podcast. Um, I need an internet connection and a computer to run Survival Podcast, honestly. That's that's what I need. If I were 22 doing this and is just as successful as I am with it, and I wasn't married and I didn't have any kind of roots holding me back, uh, if I had been able to do this 20 years ago instead of, you know, four years ago, it would be very tempting for me to become kind of a global traveler and go live in Costa Rica for three months, and then maybe go live you know, in Australia for three months. And if you do that, what you could actually end up doing is getting to a point where you're not paying any income tax because your host country doesn't charge you until you've been there a certain amount of time, and the government has a hard time getting at your money. And it's very difficult as an American citizen, but if you're a citizen of any other country, it's really pretty easy to do because most countries have brains. And they know if you're not home and you're not living there, you're not taking from the pool, so you shouldn't have to pay into the pool. Uh, and your host country says, well, you're here spending your money in our economy, and if you're not going to stay here long term, we don't want your taxes from income either. We'll take sales and a boost to the economy. So there's a lot of people that are that are taking this to the extreme, and they're basically getting citizenship from a country friendly to them, uh, where it's somewhat easy to do something like Costa Rica is one place where it's pretty easy to do. And then once they have that, they're renouncing their U.S. citizenship, and then they're living all over the world, and they get a passport from Costa Rica to go back to the United States anytime they want. They still get their Social Security. In fact, some of them, even after that, will still pay into Social Security, but they get out of the income tax. But there's a lot of people that don't want to go that far. 
So they travel and they get as many tax advantages as they can, and they receive their income into a foreign country. And this is a lot of the Internet entrepreneur kind of people that follow like Tim Ferriss and things like that, but they still have U.S. citizenship. That's who they're going after. And they're getting people like, like this, this, this guy's sister in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the side of the net, but that's who they're after. The people that are out there living all over the world, living kind of that uh, professional vagabond lifestyle. And that's what they want. They want to take every penny that they can get from everybody they can get a penny from. And that's just one example. And there's plenty of examples like that out there. Just thought maybe you guys would be interested in knowing that's really the driver behind that. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Tom in Georgia. I have a couple of pond questions. There are two places on my property where the last owner dug depressions for ponds that were about four to 600 square feet. But I'm told that neither one was ever filled. I think I could get rain runoff into one using swales like what you did, but not the other one. But the one that I could get water to is back in the woods where no heavy equipment can go. So if it needs something to line it to help it retain water, that might not work. And it also has a lot of big vegetation in the basin, including some pine trees that are several inches in diameter. Um, that would be a problem if I flooded it. I, they would probably die, I guess. These holes might be 20 years old. Um, then there's another place where water is collecting naturally, there's not a big depression there, so it's just an area that's about one to 200 square feet and a few inches deep, but it has reeds growing in it, and it usually stays flooded. I'm wondering if I can do anything with that. I'd like to have one or more ponds, and rainfall here is about 50 inches per year, so there's some potential. Do you have any thoughts? Thanks. Well, on, on some of your stuff, you're kind of all over there, but I'll, I'll do the best that I can. Let's start out with the place you don't think you can get equipment into. Um, you, if you're talking about three or 400 square feet, you're not talking about that much work to be done if you wanted to, let's say, line it with bentonite, uh, maybe a couple inches bentonite across that area. I mean, if you could cut in a trail big enough to get in like a, like a UTV, like a mule or something like that even, um, you could haul your bentonite back in there, have it delivered on a flatbed and, and haul it in a few bags at a time. You could line that. As far as the trees that would die, it's not really a problem. What you could do is actually cut them uh, to a point where they're, you know, shoot a line basically across your, your, uh, your, your dam and determine how high the water line is going to be and uh, cut them so they, they stick up above that water line maybe a couple feet. And basically you've got flooded timber, uh, and that's good habitat. And it's fine if they die. It's, it's, it's completely, you're not going to have trees growing in the middle of a pond unless maybe it's something like a cypress anyway. So it's structure. And if you look at all of the, the lakes that are built by the Corps of Engineers across the country, uh, they leave plenty of standing timber in them for that exact reason. It's great habitat for fish and wildlife. So that's one way you could make that one work, since it seems like you have enough catchment there that you could you could get it to fill and be self-sustaining relatively easily. The area that you have water already kind of pooling from time to time, that's just kind of like a depression with some reeds and all, if you can get a backhoe in there, you might be able to do kind of what Sepp Holzer calls a stealth pond. And uh, Sepp lives over in Austria where we think we have regulations and government interference. Oh, my God. From reading his book, it, there was times where I just wanted to, like, pull my eardrums out of my ears with a fork to think that there's so much interference. So to, to get permission to build a pond there, you've got to go through all this crap, right? But if the pond is preexisting, then it's protected. Right? So what Sepp would do is if you had this, like, depression area like you're, you're talking about, he'd just go in with equipment and, and instead of even excavating it, just push it down, right? And you'd be surprised. You can, if you, especially if you wait till it's damp, 
You might be able to push it down two feet in certain areas and a, a foot in other areas. You just push it down, right? You just take that, you get a big track hoe in there. And you just put that bucket down and you just push until you're pushing the, the track hoe up in the air. And you just keep pushing it and you keep shaping it. And you just kind of push it all the way around. Well, what you're doing is you've already got soil that's compacted and holding water and moisture to a degree. You're just further compacting it. And it's more like a wetland marsh then. Uh, but you can get some pretty deep pools and something like that. So that would be one way to do it. Very, very low maintenance. And if you put some swales in and out of there and some overflow, maybe you can feed some of these other ponds with it. Your other pond where you don't think you, I guarantee you there's catchment somewhere. Right? I guarantee you there's catch, the, the third one, some, the reason the guy put it there in the first place, even if he never lined it or filled it or did whatever, there's catchment somewhere. If there wasn't, he probably, unless he's a complete dumbass. Remember that water always moves at right angle to contour. Look for things like, is there flow coming down a hard surface like a road that you can divert and, and pick up all that hard, hard surface runoff or something like that? Maybe pushing it through and running it through kind of a smaller marsh before it dumps in to help filter out some of that crap from reeds and stuff like that before it comes in off the road straight into your pond. There's always ways to, so those are just some thoughts that I have. But it sounds like you've got reasonable catchment at this one that you can't get equipment into. And it may be as simple as, you know, go online, search Bentonite uh, pond lining uh, calculator. And you'll find some sites that allow you to figure out how much Bentonite you would need. And if it's already dug and it's just got like a bunch of organic matter in all there, like it's got leaf litter and stuff like that, if you just cut down the trees that are in your way that you don't want to deal with or what have you, and you just go in there and you just line it and tamp it down with bentonite, it might just take care of itself from there. It's something maybe a better thing to do uh, is to try to find a local person that does ponds and bring them in as a consultant because it's very hard for me to give you anything beyond what I've given you today without actually seeing it being there for myself and what have you. And I'm not an expert pond builder, but that, that marshy area you got, that sounds textbook what Seth was talking about and just using your machine to compress the ground and push it down. And think, if you push, if you have a place that's already holding water and you wait till it's good and damp and you get in there with a big track hoe and you just get that bucket and you push down about a foot to two feet and you do that wherever you can, man, you're going to have a really great uh, water holding area and uh, very, very little effort and no real signs of excavation around it, which is kind of cool for a variety of reasons. Basically, nature started it and nature's heading a certain way. You're just speeding it up. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Charles in Iowa, and I am calling with a question in regards to commodities and specifically gold and silver, something you talked about quite a bit on your show. You're probably getting six questions about that, but you also recently had Carl Denninger on your show, and as you know, he is not at all a fan or a proponent of precious metals. And I listened to that episode, but, but that particular subject, I don't recall, really came up all that much and I wanted to get your thoughts on why Denninger thinks that those are not good investments or not even good insurance, and why you think he's wrong. One of the things he mentions is all the leverage in the gold futures market, and that it's leveraged 10 to 1, and his linear reasoning there is that, uh, or, or idea is that because it's leveraged 10 to 1, the value could drop by 90% quite easily in a bout of deflation. So... You could elaborate on that and specifically his criticism of those precious metal investors and where you think he's maybe gone astray there. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. 
Well, Carl and I don't really disagree. We just disagree at one end of the spectrum. See, this is why when everything Carl says about gold and silver having a possibility of doing th certain things is absolutely 100% true. But it's one side of the spectrum. There's three things gold and silver can do. One is stay pretty much stable, which both have done for very long periods of time. One is be a very, very, very volatile move down. And the other one is very, very volatile move up. And, and both metals have a track record of doing those three things in different economic climates. Now, Carl would probably tell you now is not a great time to go buy a bunch of gold, and I would agree. It seems still high. I called the correction in advance of it by months. I said that this, this had to correct, and it did. And I think there's still more correction left to happen as we have more song and dance, false recovery bullshit going through this year. Um, silver has corrected heavily, and I'm a little, and I've been this way for years, a little more aggressive on a silver buy, but I'm still kind of hold in a holding pattern, but I have a lot of silver, right? And I have some gold. So it makes it easier for me to say, no, I'm not buying, because I already have some as an insurance policy. What Carl doesn't talk about is, well, what happens when things swing the complete opposite direction and money is severely devalued through inflation and gold and silver act as a hedge against it? You have to understand that Carl's mentality is completely different from the average person's. Carl is a trader. He is not an investor. He is a trader. And I mean trader, not traitor. Okay? He's definitely a patriot, so don't take it the wrong way. But he's a trader. In his own words, I do not let the sun go down on an investment. So if he buys a stock today, he damn well knows he will sell it before the bell closes today. And it will sit in cash while he sleeps. That kind of person isn't going to hold any volatile commodity. So everything he's saying about gold and silver, he would say about coffee and, and, and pig stomachs and, and orange juice futures. That they can be leveraged in this. And he's not wrong. He's just not right, in my view, because you can't answer the question, well, what if it goes the other way then? And you're sitting in cash. And you don't have anything insuring against it. And, and I guess his answer is, well, since I'm good at what I do and I do it all the time, I have lots of cash. They can devalue and I still have lots. That's great if you're called manager. That's great if you sit there and trade on the ticker all day long as the ticker guy. What I'll point out to you, though, when, you, when, you, you know, when you're dealing with anybody that's uh, telling you what to do with your money, and that's why I seldom tell you what to do with your money. I tell you how I understand it and say, now you figure it out. Uh, Carl had did, done three posts in 2011, about the crisis is going on, and all three posts were, it's over. Well, it ain't over yet, now is it? And, and that just, you know, I love Carl. I'm a fan of what he does. I think his information overall is solid, but he is a pessimist to the extreme, probably because he knows so damn much, but it doesn't mean he's always right. Now, this is also, though, why I say, so I'll come out and I'll say, 5% of your money in gold and silver is plenty. That's plenty. And people say, oh, you should have more, you should have more. And when people say, why? Because Carl's right. That's why you don't do 25%. Because it can, you can have silver drop by 30% in one day. And in Carl's words, and he's right when he says this, something that can be devalued by 30% in a day is not money. And people say, well, the Federal Reserve has devalued the dollar by 97% since 1913. But silver or gold have been devalued by 15% to 30% in a week before. So they are a commodity that have been used as a currency 
in the past and are still used as a currency in some places in the present. But this whole system is so manipulated that we really don't know what's going to happen. And because I don't know, I choose to take one small piece of my total wealth and insure it with this. And if everything Carl says is going to happen, happens, and my gold or silver is devalued, it's not that much. But if the other side of the envelope collapses and that, that stuff inflates in value, at least I have some. That's why I take a different approach than Carl does. Not because he's wrong, but because he might be right or he might not be right about what's going to happen tomorrow. Anyway, let's take another call. Jack, it's Chuck in South Texas. I'm actually up in, uh, in your former home area, Dallas. Just wanted to call. I heard uh, on one of the on one of the episodes I just listened to, you're looking at getting a cur. Uh, wanted to let you know I have a black mouth cur. That uh, her name's Kimber. We've had her for about three years now, and uh, she's actually saved my son from getting bitten by a rattlesnake by getting in between them and uh, and letting him know that that the snake was there. And uh, she's actually found no less than four snakes this year alone, uh, rattlesnakes, and. Uh, with small kids, it's just something that, that you uh, re- really need to be careful of in South Texas. So uh, I guess I just wanted to reaffirm that, that uh, I think that's a good decision on your part. Uh, they're great dogs, they're good family dogs, and they're very protective of the family. So anyway, have a good one. I'll uh, see you later. Bye. It's an ongoing internal debate I have between my next dog, between the Kerr and the Feist, and uh I just get feedback from you guys all the time, one way or another, by email, by phone call, uh, saying one's great, and then the other one's great, and then the other one's great. And I don't really know yet. I mean, like I said, I, I'm a, I love to squirrel hunt. I can squirrel hunt like 80, 90% of the year in this state. And both dogs are good squirrel dogs, but, but the Feist seems to be a better dog for squirrel hunting and probably less prone to overheating in some of the warm weather you can hunt here just because they're a smaller dog, but I'm not sure about that. Um, But the cur's more versatile, and I think the cur would be a better home defense dog, and I think the cur would be a better dog at protecting uh, the other animals from things like coyotes. Uh, curs are tough animals. They have no fear. And uh, I guess the simple solution would be getting one of each, but um, I, don't know if, I don't know what's going to happen yet. But it's good to hear, and I was really happy to hear you say this. This, this, this was like, this made me put, I'll tell you what made me put this call in here, because it's not really a question. She saved, uh, the dog saved my daughter from being bit by a rattlesnake. That is an absolute true statement, most likely, by getting in between her and, 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 and holding it back and, and that type of thing. This is when I get, I just want to, I can't take it when I hear it. That dog saved my life, or that dog saved my kid's life by getting a rattlesnake. Um, 99% of people bitten by rattlesnakes do not die. The dog did not save your life. It saved you a really crappy, shitty experience, uh, but most likely it saved you being bit. That's the true statement. And if you ever come across a dog that's done something like that, please phrase it that way. Don't sound like a fool. And thank you to the caller for phrasing that. Well, I really appreciate you doing that. That's just one of them little pet peeves that's always bugged me. But keep telling me, folks, those of you that got curves, those of you got fights, which one should I get and why? And uh, hopefully I won't have to make that decision anytime soon. Wife and I were talking last night. Blackie's supposed to be dead three months now. Doctor doesn't know Dick as far as we're concerned. He's doing better than ever. We were walking that dog about a half mile a day up a steep hill. And for a dog that's 14 years old, 
that's about all you can ask for from a from an old lab like that. And uh, he seems to be going strong. And either he doesn't care that he has cancer, or the guy's wrong and he doesn't have it. And uh, I'm hoping I'm making this decision sometime next year, not sometime next month. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey Jack, this is Lance uh, from Arizona, and um, AKA Desert Dude. I've left a few messages before, but I think I've thought of something a little more interesting than what I may have said before. Um, really quick here, um, being a poor person, a lot of people don't don't um, they don't cover issues that relate to being poor, having some student loan debt. You know, there is a way, a very basic way, to get out. People don't see it, but I know I have found a way for myself that within five years, if I'm not completely out of debt, uh, I will be well on my way to being completely out of debt. I went through my whole budget and I slashed like I've never slashed before. Unfortunately, even your show, uh, but hopefully I plan on getting back in there after the new year into 2012. But anyway, I wonder what your thoughts were on how poor people with an existing job with some student loan debt or whatever not major student loan like ten to twenty thousand and uh, a couple other things hanging out there but uh, how they could uh, nine or ten bucks an hour how they can actually the things they can do to you know get ahead also a small trailer on a piece of land on a small piece of land I'm not talking about a McMansion something very sensible a pickup truck a small piece of land a little trailer or make your own cabin something like that uh i've seen people online do it i wonder what your thoughts are thank you i love your show everything is great you are great the show's great uh i can't i can't say anything higher i recommend everybody i know do it thank you for listening to me goodbye well good call and good question um i, I here's As a business person, I think of everything from a business standpoint. So when I look at a business unit, and I think we would be so much better off as Americans, if even if we're going to be an employee and we're not going to be an entrepreneur, if we would look at our homes and our lifestyles and our budget and everything else as a business owner. If you're not a business owner of any company, you're the business owner of your household and your life. So when I look at a struggling business unit, there's two sides to the equation. There's an expense and an income. And the easy thing to do is to cut the expenses everywhere you can. And in most instances, unless the expense is generating income, not offset by, but generating income, you, you cut the expenses. So do we need this extra office space? No. Then we sublet it out. Now we turn it into an income stream. That's a business decision. Or can't sublet it out, so we find a smaller, more affordable space to conduct business operations. That mentality can be taken into a household. I don't care if you make seven or eight dollars an hour, you can, you can do the same thing. But the other thing, and this is so critical, and it's a problem for people that when you start referring to yourself as poor, then you're poor. Understand, you're not poor because of how much money you have or you don't have, unless you have nothing. Alright, there's a, there's a point where you look at somebody and go, that guy's poor, man. He doesn't have nothing. But, but really, the, the mental state is whether you're in poverty or not. Because it's how you choose to live. So the problem with people when they start referring to themselves as poor is now they can only operate on one side of the balance sheet, the expense side, and cut, 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 cut. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying now we're ignoring the income. See, if we can get more income, then we can do even more because now that we've cut the expense, the income has power and has leverage. I can pay the debt faster. I can get that little piece of land in that travel trailer and live there and cut my expenses even further faster. 
Right? That, and then I can get out of the debt faster. And then I can start to accumulate faster. And then I can put myself into a self-sufficiency mode faster because I have greater income. So how do we do that? Well, one, you look for a better job. But duh. I think every, and a lot of people right now, man, I have a $9 an hour job. I'm grateful to have a job. Great. Deliver pizzas. Deliver pizzas three nights a week. Um, go out and find a job contracting. Uh, if you learn some skills and go out and, and, and do some temporary part-time work as a handyman, whatever it is, work two jobs, work three jobs. When you're young, you're young and, quote, poor, then your goal is to not be poor no more. So anything you can do to increase the income. Go pick up scrap metal and take it. I mean, I don't care. Go to garage sales and yard sales. Look for people selling wheels, And learn to identify steel and aluminum and, and get pricing and know, what can I get if I take this down to the scrapyard? And, and, and you know what you can pay. I don't care what it is. Find additional income sources instead of going out to the bar and chasing girls. Right? I mean, that's, and I'm not saying anybody's doing it. I'm just saying that's one mentality to have. Now, the concept of a little piece of land and living in a travel trailer, I think is genius. And I think that for people that can make it work, It's really, really a good idea. I think that it's not is it's not glorious living. I think it has problems that some people will have a hard time really understanding until they do it. But you can do anything for two or three years, and if you can get a little piece of land where you at least can get electrical service so that you have that going for you, and you throw that thing on there and you just live in it for two or three years, when you come out the other side of it, you can do anything you want. And maybe it's now I'm going to bring in a, a mobile home. Maybe it's now I'm going to build a little cabin. I don't know what. It's whatever you want. But now I've got wealth of land ownership. And if you do that, you can probably pay the land off less than five years. I mean, it's a little bit trickier to get a loan on raw land than it is a house. In fact, it's a lot trickier. So you might have to save up to buy a $10,000 piece of land, $5,000. But there's ways even around that. There's, you know, uh, the Dirt Cheap Survival Retreat by uh, the guy that runs Survivalist Blog. His name's slipping from me right now. M.D. Creekmore. Um, he outlines the whole, it's a book that sells for like 10 bucks or something. Outlines the whole damn process of how he did it for a few thousand dollars. So it can be done if we're creative and we lower our expectations. But Is it that bad that we lower our expectations if it's a short-term expectation, if it's part of a larger plan? Because what, again, are we trying to say? The goal when you're young and poor is to be poor no more. I just made that up because it sounded cool. And maybe it sounds dumb. I don't know. But that's the point, man. It's, it's not about staying poor and learning how to live happily poor. It's about learning how to go from poor to wealthy, even if you don't increase your income that much. Of course it can be done. What are the biggest expenses that people have? Car payments, house payments, insurance payments on both, gas on both of them, and taxes on the property because the property is expensive. Uh, and then medical. Those are your six biggest expenses. How can we lean them out? Young, healthy male, you carry high deductible health insurance if it's not provided at work, and you keep yourself healthy and safe, and you make sure if you get hurt, you're going to be taken care of. You get your housing as cheap as you can. You get your land as cheap as you can. When you do that, you've already taken out the cost of the expense. You buy a, a beater car, or you buy two beater cars, so when one breaks down, you can still go to work and you have time to fix the other one. Their insurance is low because you just carry liability on the damn things. You say, what if one gets totaled? we got two pieces of shit, cars, right? So if one gets totaled, you wait until you can afford to buy another one, and you save the damn money. Can you do that? Absolutely. Are you going to probably be uh, hanging out with a lot of uh, a lot of up and coming young women if you're a young man doing this? Not likely. You're not going to be the. But 
long term, right? So you gotta, and I think some people are willing to make this sacrifice and some people aren't. Some people are willing to do it at 20 and some people have to have their ass kicked by life when they're 40 and starting over and they're finally ready to do it. I don't know where it fits in for you. And I'm not saying it's the way that anybody definitely should live. And to be fair, it's not the way I plan on living. But if I were 22 years old again and I knew all the stuff I know now about Bill, if I came into the internet at a different time in my life, and I was just now building an income stream, and I could make a couple thousand dollars a month doing this, you can bet I'd be pounding stuff out on the keyboard of a laptop and, and, and something like that right now. Because I'd know by the time I'm, I'm 40, like I'm fixing to turn this year, that I'd be even further than I am. So, And it could be a job. It, could be, it doesn't matter how the income source is. So I definitely think it's an option. And, and that's the big thing to understand is an, it's an option. And there's a lot of other options. Maybe you don't have the money to be able to even buy the piece of land on the travel trailer right now because it's hard to finance that. But you can probably go out and find a decent uh, place with a mobile home, you know, single wide, where you can rent for $300, $400 a month. That's very, very inexpensive, right? And it, or, or maybe it's you and a buddy get together and go find an apartment together or two better. I don't know, but... There's, and that's what I did. When I was a 20, you know, young 20 something, uh, and I was making about 13 bucks an hour, you know, before I got into sales. That was kind of as, as high as I, I could get in, in, you know, the construction industry, the telecom industry uh, at the time with very little experience. Um, I, it just wasn't in the cards. I couldn't afford to go out and buy, get an apartment myself. Um, and, and myself and a friend, you know, that I actually went to high school with that came down here and I helped him get a job where I was at. We got an apartment together. It was how we got started. If I hadn't been a dumbass and bought a truck I couldn't afford back then, um, I would have gotten even further faster. I hadn't bought a boat. See, I was, I was really enjoying my money, even though I didn't have a lot of it back then. I had a boat. I had a new truck. Went out to the lake every weekend, and I had a lot of fun. I don't know that I would trade it, the memories from it, but boy, I tell you what, I could have done a lot more without having a lot of income. Just saying. Uh, with that, I've got the uh, the show wrapped up today. I've been enjoying getting back into doing your call shows. Remember, 866-65-THINK. We are not going to have a call-in show next week because I will be in Vegas, and I just can't do that from there. Call in anyway. What I will try to do is do the call-in show so I don't get behind on the calls again like I did last year on Monday of the following week, and then I'll take the listener feedback show and, and button that in somewhere else during that week. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.
Revolution is you.